All right, well, welcome everyone to part, uh, part four of a series that we're doing on covenants, about telling the greater story. For the last few weeks, we've been diving into the covenants in the Bible to kind of really help us really to understand more about who God is and the plans that God has for our lives. It's been kind of an exciting uh, part studying these covenants in the Old Testament because when you study the covenants, you really see clearly what the heart of God is. See, the card of God through all through the Bible is that he wants to reveal himself to us. And through the covenants, we see a God that is on mission to rescue people that are hurt and that are lost and are broken, that are marginalized. We see a God who's going to go out of his way to find people and bring people to them. When the introduction, I read that scripture from the book of Exodus, from Exodus 4, that where God says, you know how I carried you on eagle's wings and I brought you to myself. I mean, that's such a powerful phrase that we hear in the Bible. Right before God is going to give us covenant with Abraham, he starts out, by, or he's going to give us covenant with Moses, he starts out to remind the people of what I did for you in the past, that I brought you to myself. See, that's such a common theme in the Bible, that God wants a relationship with us. That God is going to do anything possible. He will go out of his way to bring us into a relationship with him. So we've been studying covenants because there's four basic parts of a covenant. And the four parts of the covenant is a theme that runs through the entire Bible. And the first part of covenant is that God is revealing to people and saying, this is who I am. And the second part of covenant is God is saying, this is who you are. And the third part is, this is what I want to do for you. And the fourth part is, what I want you to do in return. And this whole covenant is built all around the central purposes that God is trying to rescue us. That he's trying to bring us into a place that he has for us. See, so often when we read the Bible, I think we miss the fact that God wants to reveal himself to us. Last week I quoted a professor from Wheaton College named John Walton who said, the Bible is all about God clearing a path to get to us. I think so often we think we got to clear this path that we got to get to God, and I think those covenants show us that God is always on a mission to come to us and to come to rescue us. Last week we started this series. We talked about Genesis 1 where God places Adam and Eve in a garden and he he gives a covenant to them. The word covenant is not in the book of Genesis, but God comes to Adam and Eve and says, this is who I am, this is who you are, this is what I'm going to do for you, and this is what I'm going to require that you do in exchange. And we all know what happened in the garden, that Adam and Eve had a choice to make between eating of the tree of life, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and even though God warned them, don't eat of that tree, it's not going to produce good results, we know what happened. That other tree was just so enticing, and it's all we all know what that's like. We like, I wonder what would happen if I really did that. So Adam and Eve did what they're supposed to do, and then the question is, is it really going to happen? Will they really die? And we see from Scripture that, in fact, they did start the process of death in their life. And it goes on in Genesis, and it, it, in Genesis 3, it, God tells Adam and Eve, what are the consequences going to be for their action? And in Genesis 3, verse 23 through 24, we read this scripture that says, So the Lord God banished them, Adam and Eve, from the Garden of Eden, and he set Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. After sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden, and he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So suddenly Adam and Eve, who started in a perfect garden, with a perfect relationship with God, with no sin at all, suddenly they're outside of the garden because of the effects of sin and they can't get back in the garden. 
So this once beautiful relationship that they had with God has now been marred by sin, and Adam and Eve are standing outside of the garden, and they're probably wondering, how do we get back in? Or how do we get to that place where we have joy and happiness like we had before? Because in the garden, they had perfect joy. They walked with God, and suddenly they're outside the garden. They're probably wondering, what do we do now? But the truth is, every one of us is like Adam and Eve that stands outside of the garden. That we stand outside of the garden with the consequences and the effect that original sin has had on our life. And we stand outside of the garden, marred by sin, and we wonder too, how do you get back in? We wonder in our life, how do we find joy and how do we find peace and behind happiness? And when you live outside of the garden, sometimes you're always kind of wondering what is going to bring joy and what's going to be happiness into your life. And just like Adam and Eve, we live outside the garden dealing with the consequence of shame in our life. The Bible tells us that after Adam and Eve sinned, that they recognized their nakedness and they felt shame. Part of shame is just being separated from God. Shame happens when you have a misunderstanding of who you really are in the sight of God. Shame happens when you don't understand how God sees you and suddenly you have this overwhelming guilt and anxiety in your life. And that's the place that Adam and Eve were standing outside the garden wondering what is their future going to look like. But see, the truth is that God wants to rescue each person who's standing outside of the garden. That he wants to rescue each person who's standing outside of the garden dealing with the consequences of sin in their life. See, sometimes I think we look at the story of Adam and Eve and we look at this verse and we think, you know, why was God so mean to them and sent them outside the garden? Did he take delight in sending them out? Was he trying to punish them? Was he trying to be really mean to them and saying, oh, I'm so mad at you, you just get out? See, in this verse, when God sends them out of the garden, you do see one of God's greatest acts of grace and mercy. See, it was the grace and the mercy and the love and the compassion of God that removed Adam and Eve from the garden so that they could recognize their helplessness and their need for a Savior. See, if God would have left Adam and Eve stay in the garden after sin, they never would have experienced the consequences of sin in their life, and they would have never understood that they need someone to save them, that they need someone to rescue them. So in God's compassion, sometimes he will allow difficult situations to enter into our life, not because he's mad and mean, but because he wants to show us how much we need him in our life. So sometimes the most difficult things that happen in our life can always be the stage that God wants to play out a story of redemption in our life. You know, a friend of mine pointed out to me last week when I was talking about how we stand outside the garden. He said to me, you know, we stand outside the garden, but we have to remember that Jesus was resurrected in the garden. See, Jesus was resurrected in another garden is often referred to as a garden of victory. And see, that's where Jesus wants to bring us. That's where God wants to take that eagle and bring us from outside of the Garden of Eden and bring us into that garden of victory. That's the plan that God has for our life, that we would enjoy the victory that only comes through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's the journey that God wants to take us on. So last week we talked to, a couple weeks ago, we talked about the covenant, the very the very first covenant in the Bible that God made with Noah. 
And in the covenant with Noah, God again shows grace and mercy and love. And I think sometimes we think that's an awkward place to see the grace and mercy of God. You think Noah, you think disaster, you think the world is destroyed. But what God does in the, in, with Noah is he says, shows to Noah, he said, look, you were sinful before the flood, you're sinful after the flood, and I'm going to love you. That I look at the sinfulness of human beings and I am not going to say to you, you better figure out a way to come to me. But God says through his covenant after the flood, he says, I'm always going to make a way to come to you. And I'm not going to destroy the world because of your sin. I'm going to show love and compassion. So in the midst of what looks like the world's biggest tragedy of having a flood destroy the world, God reveals, reveals himself is a God of love and of a God of compassion and a God who will always search and will always rescue. And last week we talked about the covenant that God made with Abraham. And again, it's another covenant where God shows his grace and his mercy. See, before God made a covenant with Abraham, he gave three promises to Abraham. He said, you're going to have a huge family. The first thing, you are going to have a very, very large family. And second, you are going to inherit a promised piece of land. I'm going to give you a piece of land to live on. And third, I'm going to bless the entire world through your family. And it looks like an amazing promise. And it is an amazing promise. But before God enacted that covenant with Abraham's family, he said, okay, you're going to have to do one thing. You're going to have to move. You're going to have to move away from your family, your friends. You're going to have to move away from all of these things in your life that have been having a negative influence in your life. Because the Bible tells us that Abraham's uh, father and his family member worshipped idols. And what God is saying to Abraham and his family, you're going to have to give up something if you're going to come and worship me. If you want this relationship with me, this covenant relationship with me, and these promises in your life, you're going to have to give up something. Sometimes that's a hard place to be when God's actually requiring us to give up something because the first thing is you think is, how can I do that? That's hard. But again, we see in the book of Romans, the apostle Paul talks about what God did for Abraham. He gave him the grace and the faith to move. See, God never requires anybody to do anything or ask anybody to do anything that he is not going to give you the ability to do it. God always gives grace and faith before he would require any obedience. And that's what God does to Abraham. He says, I'm going to give this beautiful covenant with you. I'm going to make this promise to your family and to the next family and the next family. And I'm going to give you the ability to be in covenant relationship with me. So you finish the book of Genesis, and that takes us through Abraham's family, and it ends pretty well. There's the, the, Abraham's family's doing well. His great, great, great grandson is prospering. He has a wonderful position in the nation of Egypt, and you think things are really, really going well. And then you read this uh, next section of Scripture in Exodus. You go from Genesis to the next book is Exodus, and it says, eventually a new king came in power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. He said to his people, look, the people of Israel now outnumber us and are stronger than we are. We must make a point to keep them from going, growing even more. If we don't, and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us. Then they will escape from the country. So the Egyptians made the Israelites their slave. They appointed brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labor. They forced them to build the cities of Pithon and Ramth. Ramirez and supply centers for the king. But the more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more the Israelites multiplied and spread, and the more alarmed the Egyptians became. 
So the Egyptians worked the people of Israel without mercy. They made their lives bitter, forcing them to mix mortar and to make bricks and do all the work in the fields. They were ruthless in all of their demands. So you finish the book of Genesis, and you see the promises of God going pretty well for Abraham's family. And now you're into his great-great-great-grandson's family line, and the nation of Israel is going into captivity of Egypt. And you think, what just happened? You think, what happened to this God that said, I'm going to bless you, that I'm going to protect you? And suddenly we're seeing a family and a whole nation in a really difficult situation in captivity in Egypt. And things aren't going well. They're being treated very, very poorly. And you wonder why. God, you said you were going to bless this family. Why are they experiencing such difficulties? And we shouldn't be too surprised because last week we did read in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 15, when God made covenant with Abraham, he said to Abraham, Then the Lord said to Abram, You can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land where they will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. Right in the book before, it tells us that the nation of Israel is going to end up in captivity to 400 years. And sometimes we get to that place where reading they're actually in captivity and we're like surprised. We're surprised it really happened. But the Bible did give us a little forewarning that it would happen. But yet we're all a little surprised that it actually did happen. And I think sometimes we read in Scripture about some of those promises that talk about that we're going to endure hardships or suffering in our life and it's all going to be to our advantage. Sometimes we forget we read those. See, there was a famine that originally hit the land of Canaan and Abraham's family had to leave that land and they had to go to Egypt. And God was gracious to that family in Egypt and supplied everything that they needed But then as the nation of Israel grew and grew and grew, suddenly the pharaoh of that nation of Egypt got a little nervous about the Israelites and made him do a lot of slave labor because he was worried that the Israelites would have too much influence over his nation. So suddenly, once one time, the Israelites had a great position in Egypt. Everything was going well. And it was just like overnight, suddenly they're in captivity and we wonder why. And I think the truth is, suffering is a hard topic for every single one of us. Even though all of us experience it, and probably every person in this room, there's something in your life that you would like to change. If you could snap your finger and it would go away, probably most people would be all for that. Every one of us deals with hard situations in our life, and it's always difficult when we get into those situations. And often one of our first questions is, why is this happening to me? We know that the Bible is clear that difficult things that happen in our life are ultimately going to benefit us, but I think none of us really appreciate those lessons. I would like to be able to take a pass on that. See, in the book of Romans, in Romans 8, it says this verse that we like. It says, And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. And we read that verse, and we're like, yeah, we like that. We're grateful that we are heirs of the Son of God. We're grateful for the position that we have as children of God, and we like the fact that we get a share in God's glory. And we're all like, yeah, I want that. Then the second part of the verse, sometimes we don't like that as much because it says, but if we are to share in his glory, we must also share in his suffering. Like, wait a minute. I don't like that part as much. I don't like hard things to happen. 
I don't like difficult things to happen. I want to be back in that Garden of Eden where everything's perfect and everything's fine and the weather's perfect and my relationship with God is perfect. I don't like being outside of that garden where things are a little difficult. But I think we focus on the resurrection and we focus on the victory that God wants to bring in our life and that's, that's great and we should. But we also have to remember that before Jesus got to the garden of victory, he had to go through the garden of Gethsemane. That Jesus had to go through the garden of suffering. We forget that part sometimes, that the night before Jesus died on the cross, he went to this garden that was right next to a grove of olive trees. It's often referred to as a garden of suffering. And the Gospel of Luke tells us that the night before, the night Jesus was arrested, he went to that garden to pray for his, with his disciples. And Jesus knew what was ahead of him. He knew that night he would be arrested. He knew that he would be beaten, that he would be crucified, and then he would be killed. He knew that he would ultimately be raised from the dead, but he knew he was going to have to go through a period of intense, intense suffering. And as Jesus went to that garden that night, he went to pray with his disciples. The Gospel of Luke tells us that Jesus was under so much pressure that he actually sweat drops of blood. That the anxiety was so great in Jesus that as he prayed, that as he thought about what he was going to go through, he sweat drops of blood. And that is a real physical thing that can happen when there's so much anxiety on a person and so much pressure on a person that they would actually sweat drops of blood. I think sometimes, I know I've done that in my life, and I look at the cross and I look at what Jesus went through and I think, well, did it, did it really hurt that bad? I mean, after all, he is God. Maybe pain didn't affect him as much. And I think we kind of wonder sometimes, well, God is, maybe that didn't, wasn't as hard as what it looks. But I think the fact that Jesus was sweating drops of blood reveals to us how much he knew it was going to hurt in how much suffering he knew he would endure. Because if this was no big deal to him, or he didn't think it was really going to hurt, I don't think he had been sweating it out the night before. But it was in that garden of suffering that Jesus had to go through to get to the garden of victory. And I think the question is, then how did Jesus do it? How come he didn't go bolting from the garden that night saying, whoa, this is way too much for me? Because Jesus did pray and he said to God three times, he said, hey, if this can, cup can be taken away from me, meaning if you have another plan, could we do this another way? I'd really like it. And I think we've all prayed those prayers. God, is there another option here? And Jesus actually prayed that three times, said, God, if there's another option, could we have another plan? But Jesus hung in there. And the Bible tells us why. In Hebrews 12, it tells us that because of the joy awaiting him, Jesus endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Because of the 
joy awaiting him, he endured the cross and the shame. See, again, there's that word shame that comes in, and shame is such a, so connected with being separated from God that Jesus knew he would have to go through a season, through the three days, that there would be some separation that he would actually have from God and that he would actually have to be beaten and crucified. But why did he do it? Because number one, he knew it was the will of God. And when you're walking in the will of God, he is going to give you some supernatural grace to do things that you can never do on your own. And the second reason that Jesus could do it is because God gave him faith. He had faith to believe that there was going to be benefits to what he was going to go through. And because Jesus understood the benefits of what he was going to go through, he knew that there would be joy on the other side. Because Jesus understood how his death and how his resurrection would ultimately have an impact on other people. See, the word Gethsemane is a very powerful word. It's a Hebrew word that comes from two words that it means the place where olive oil is pressed. And you wonder probably, what does olive oil have to do with Jesus? What does olive oil have to do with suffering? See, the production of olives and olive oils was a very big part of the culture back in the Mediterranean region. See, olive oil was an essential part of everyday life for the Israelites, for everybody living in that culture. Everybody needed olive oil. You could not live back in that day and survive without olive oil. You had to have olive oil. You'd use olive oil, it would be to light your house. You'd use olive oil to uh, light the inside of the temple in Jerusalem. Olive oil was used to cook your food. It was actually used to bake bread, and bread was actually an essential part of everyday life. You had to have your bread. But olive oil was also used to make salves and to make ointments that were used for healing. They're medicinal that you had to have olives, oil for healing properties. But also olive oil in the Bible is a symbol of two things. It's a symbol of the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. But oil was also used to anoint people to be priests and kings. If you were going to be a priest or a king, you had to be anointed with oil. It's a representation of the power of the Holy Spirit working in your life. You might remember back in the, in the Old Testament days when David was going to be the king, they would anoint you, and actually when you were anointed, then the power of the Holy Spirit would come upon you to give you the ability to do a job. And now we know now in the New Testament era, the anointing of God works in a bit of a different way that we'll talk about earlier. But the way you got oil, olive oil, olive oil only came... It was only produced from a lot of pressure. In order to get olive oil, you had to have a lot of pressure. See, to produce olive oil, what they would do is they would pick the olives from a tree and they would smash the olives up quite a bit, kind of uh, smash the skin around them to kind of open them up a little bit. And then they would scoop up all these olives in their mashed up state and they would put them in these mesh bags. And then they would put the mesh bag on top of an uh, olive press, which was called the Gethsemane. They'd put it on top of there, and then they would put another stone on top of it, and then they would keep increasing weight upon weight upon weight to crush down on the olives. And the more weight that was applied to the olives, the more oil that came out. 
And so you had to have a lot of pressure to produce oil. And that's the picture of what God wants us to see is why Jesus was in the garden, why he was in that garden of suffering. So he could endure pressure because it was through the pressure that you'd get the olive oil. And olive oil was always a significance because it was a mark of this power of the Holy Spirit. And it was also marked as a way to anoint people to be priests. So the suffering that Jesus endured on the cross and in the garden of suffering was so that the power of the Holy Spirit could be poured out. And sometimes in our own life, when we're going through that garden of suffering and we're wondering why, because sometimes through those gardens of suffering and difficult situations, we also see the power of the Holy Spirit being produced in our life. We see the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our life to bring about things in our life that may never have happened if we didn't have to be under a lot of pressure. Sometimes pressure will actually produce really good things in our life. But see, Jesus didn't have to live in that garden. He didn't stay in that garden of suffering. He eventually went to the garden of victory and he was raised. And God is bringing each of us out of suffering and he's bringing us into a garden to have victory as well. And we look at the nation of Egypt and we look at how much they had to suffer, the nation of Israel while they're in Egypt, and they suffered. They went through a lot of pressure. And it was not an easy place to be to live in Egypt and to live under the circumstances that we read about of the, the labor that you had to do and how taxing it was. But while the nation of Egypt was in, the nation of Israel was in Egypt, God gave them four distinct promises. In the book of Exodus, Exodus 6, God gives the nation of Israel four promises, and those promises he gave to the Israelites are the exact same promise that every single person in this room has today. See, when we're in a difficult situation, God likes to give us promises, something that we can hold on to, some hope that we can hold on to while we wait for the resurrection. And in Exodus 6, it starts out, I'm, I'm breaking it down into four parts. It says, Therefore, say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord your God. I will free you from your oppressors. And number two, and I will rescue you from your slavery in Egypt. And number three, I will redeem you with a powerful arm and great acts of judgment. And number four, I will claim you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who has freed you from oppression in Egypt. We see in Exodus 6 that God is giving us four distinct promises. And number one is that we can know him. That God has made a way for us to have a relationship with him, that we can know him. And that is the number two, is that we can live in freedom. And number four is that we can discover our purpose. Or number three is discover our purpose. And number four is that we can go and make a difference. And some of you know these are the four pillars of Lake Effect Church that this church is founded on the four biblical principles that every person can know God, live in freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference. And no matter what situation that you are facing in your life, you can have the confidence from the promises in Exodus 6 that God will make a way for you to know him, to live in freedom, to discover your purpose, and to make a difference. You can live with the confidence of whatever situation you're going on in your life that God wants to work out these, prom these four promises in your life. And that God will actively send his eagles out to find you and to bring you to him because God wants these four things to happen in every person's life. So now we're going to get down to this covenant. 
that God made with Moses. Sometimes it's called the Mosaic Covenant. Sometimes it's going to be called the covenant that God had with Israel. I probably refer to a lot as a covenant that God made with Moses and ultimately he's making to the nation of Israel. So the nation of Israel gets out of Egypt. They get out of Egypt. You know the story. They cross through the Red Sea and they get to Mount Sinai where God is going to give them the law. God's going to come down from Mount Sinai. He's going to give them the Ten Commandments. And he's going to give them about 600 or more other laws that they're going to live by. And it's kind of intimidating when you think of the law that God is going to give them. Because God is going to give this nation, he's going to give them a covenant, but it's going to be based on their obedience as well. If you want God to do this in your life, you're going to have to obey. It's a little different from the covenant that God made with Noah and Abraham where God said, I'm going to do this no matter what. Now God's coming in with a covenant and he's saying, You're going to have to obey if you want to see these things happen in your life. So there's five main parts to the promise that God's going to make with Abraham. I want to go through each of the parts, but I want to tell you that the the fifth promise is God's way to help us to see how that's going to happen in our life. So there's five main parts of this promise. You can probably find more parts of this covenant in Exodus if if you look, but these are the five main parts of the covenant. So I'm going to read it from Exodus 19. In Exodus 19, it says, Then Moses climbed the mountain to appear before God. The Lord called to him from the mountain and said, Give these instructions to the family of Jacob. Announce it to the descendants of Israel. See, before God is going to give his covenant, he's going to tell them the blessings he's going to give to him. He says, You have seen what I did to the, the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagles' wings and I brought you to myself. Now if you obey, Obey me and keep my covenant. You will be my own special treasure from among all peoples on earth. For all the earth belongs to me. And you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is a message you must give to the people of Israel. So here we have it. Before God is going to give the law, before he's going to give instructions for people how to live, he's going to tell them what he's going to do for them. The first thing that God says is that Israel is going to be God's own special treasure. Israel is going to be God's chosen people. We see in the text that we read is God says, look, everything is mine. I own everything. And because I own it all, I can choose my special people. And God is saying to the nation of Israel, you will be my special people because he's going to do something powerful through the nation of Israel. See, the second promise is that God says, you will be a kingdom of priests. Now, that's going to be a little bit surprising for the Israelites to hear that you're going to be a kingdom of priests, that everybody is going to be a priest. Now, that's not going to happen until Jesus comes. But in the Old Testament culture, the priest was singled out. There's only a few priests among all the Israelites because the priest had the assignment to have a special, intimate relationship with God, and the priest would be the go-between between God and man. And God is saying, someday you will all be priests. That's going to be kind of a shocking news to the Israelites hearing that because right now they're not used to that. See, to be a priest is one of the greatest privileges that a person could have because it's marked as an intimate relationship with God. In order to be a priest, you would have an intimate relationship with God. And what God is saying in this promise, yes, someday all of you are going to have that. And number three... The promise is that Israel would become a holy nation. 
See, the third promise that Israel be a holy nation, first, the Israelites are going to be set apart from every other nation. And second, the nation of Israel was to share in God's character. They were to be a nation that would act like God. You see, God's plan was that he would fashion the nation of Israel to look like him. That people from other tribes, other nations, they would look at the Israelites and say, wow, that is amazing. Your relationship with you, that you have with your God and how God blesses you and what your relation looks like. And other nations would say, because of that relationship, I want to be like you. I want to have that relationship. See, that was God's plan to continue on to evangelize today, that other people would look at our lives and say, wow, if that's what Christ does in your life, if that's a relationship with Jesus does in your life, I want that. And that has always been God's way to evangelize and to spread the gospel, that we would look so attractive to outsiders, they would say, hey, how do I get in on that? And the fourth promise that God makes with the Israelites is in Exodus 23, verse 22, where God says, I'm going to protect you from all of your enemies. In Exodus 23, it says, But if you are careful to obey him, following all of my instructions, then I will be an enemy to your enemies, and I will oppose those who oppose you. See, God is saying his promise, I'm going to protect you. God's continuing his promises with Abraham, saying, look, I'm going to give you a good family. I'm going to give you a good place to live. I'm going to be a blessing to you and through you. I'm going to watch over you. You're going to be my special people. I'm going to make you a nation of priests. You're going to become a holy nation. And I'm going to protect you. And what's going to come next is when God's going to give the law. He's going to give the Ten Commandments, and he's going to give all the other laws. And at this point, it might be easy to say, I don't know if I can do any of that. This all sounds really good. I like what God wants to do in my life, but it's easy to say, I don't know if I could ever obey all what he's going to require of me. And I think we do that sometime in our own life, saying, hey, I want to follow Jesus. I want to be a Christ follower, but I don't know. I think maybe sometime the bar is a little too high for me. I don't know if I can actually do what Christ has required of me. And I think back in this day of antiquity, the people are probably wondering the same thing. Will I be able to do it? Because they knew the story of Noah. They knew the story of Noah, that the heart was corrupt before the flood and after the flood. They know what happened in the Garden of Eden. They were probably wondering, will we have the capacity to follow God, to do what he's required of us, to even enjoy the benefits of this covenant? It might have been easy for them to back out now and say, I don't know if I would ever have the ability so I like the fifth promise that we see what God's going to do. And the fifth promise in Exodus 34 through 6 and 7. See, before God gives this promise, before God's going to give the covenant and the requirements, he's going to say, I'm going to give you the ability to obey. But supernaturally, I'm going to give you the grace and the mercy and the favor to believe. That even before God states out the obedience requirements, he says, look, I'm going to give you the capacity to do something that you couldn't do on your own. And in Exodus 34, we read this. Yahweh the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy, I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and forgiveness. I will lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the... I lay the sins of the parents upon the children and the grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third or the fourth generations. See, God talks about the consequences of sin, but before he talks about the consequences of sin, he talks about his compassion 
He talks about his mercy. He talks about the fact that he is slow to anger. He talks about his unfailing love. He talks about his faithfulness. But he also talks about his forgiveness. See, God's not requiring perfection from anyone. God's not requiring that if you want to participate in the blessings of God that you have to be perfect. God knew he couldn't put that requirement on people. So he put the clause in there of forgiveness. And that's the greater story of covenants, is that God wants to do something beyond any of us can imagine. That God wants to do something in our life that is beyond our ability to receive or comprehend or have obedience for. But God says, I'm going to make a way for you to participate in the plans that I have for you. I'm going to give you compassion. I'm going to give you mercy. I'm going to give you grace. But I'm also going to give you forgiveness that nobody's going to be trapped. That nobody has to be trapped in a cycle of sin. That nobody has to be trapped in a situation that they cannot get out of, but they just have to experience the consequences of defeat. That's what covenants are about. God's grace and his mercy. That's the bigger story that covenants want us to hear. They want to hear about God's plan to forgive. And as we continue down talking about the covenants, we'll talk about the covenant with David next week. And then we'll continue to get the covenant that we're made with Jesus on the cross. And we see over and over again God making a way to come to his people. Again, God's not requiring perfection out of anybody. God knew that standard would not, would not be attainable. So he made the standard forgiveness and gave us the ability to repent for our sins. See, the law wasn't established in the Old Testament to show us, to just make us feel bad about ourselves, to make us feel just guilty. But the, God, the goal of the, 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 the Old Testament law was to help us understand our need for a Savior, our need for a Messiah, our need for somebody to forgive us. So as the worship team comes forward, I want them to lead us in one more song. And as they lead us in the song, Let's remember the God who reaches down to us and the God that reaches out to us into the situation that we're in. He's going to rescue us. I don't know what situation you're in or maybe someone in your family's in, a personal situation that you're in or someone you're praying for. But as our team leads us in the final song, just lift that burning up to the Lord and ask the Lord to rescue you with his eagles see the mark of an eagle was always God the eagle was a symbol for God in the Bible see God is saying I will rescue you I'm the eagle that's coming to you but it's a picture that God wants us to see so as we stand in our final worship song let's just ask God where do you need him to come in your life or a life of somebody else? Let's pray for that together as they lead us in our last song.